everybody. Thank you for being here. My name is Amanda Zamora. I'm the Chief Audience Officer at the Texas Tribune. And on behalf of the Texas Tribune, I just want to welcome you all to the seventh annual Texas Tribune Festival and to this discussion about disrupting the news with Fox Media's Melissa Bell, uh, Snapchat's Peter Hamby, and Politico's Sadiq uh, Reddy. We are going to be talking today about disrupting the news. This panel is supported by Blue Cross and Blue Shield of Texas. And those sponsors and donors underwrite this event. They play no part in determining the content, the panelists, or the questions. Um, we're going to be talking for about 60 minutes. Um, we're going to do 40 minutes of discussion with the panelists here. And then we're going to open it up to questions from you all in the last 20 minutes. Um, one other thing I'd like to talk to you about is a membership. As you know, Texas Tribune News and Events are sponsored and are made possible in part by the donations of our members. So if you're a member, thank you so much. And if you're not, uh, now is a really great time to become one. This weekend only, anyone who becomes a Texas Tribune member will have the chance to win a three-night stay at Hotel San Cristobal Baja. That's an intimate beachside resort on the southwestern edge of the Baja Peninsula, complete with airfare from Southwest Airlines. If you're already a member, you still have a chance to win this getaway by making an extra donation this weekend. So you can text the word Tribune to 444-999, easy to remember, 34s, 39s. Text Tribune to 444-999 and donate by Sunday at midnight to win, uh, for, for your chance to win. Finally, we encourage all of you to tweet away with the hashtag TribFest17. Just please be sure that you put your phones on silent first. Now a bit more about our guests. Um, Melissa Bell is the publisher of Vox Media and leads Vox Media's growth and development team. She launched Vox.com in 2014 with Ezra Klein after a few years disrupting the news at the Washington Post, which is where I met Melissa. Uh, Peter Hamby is Snapchat's head of news and host of Good Luck America, Snapchat's self-produced political news show. And before joining Snapchat, Hamby was a national political reporter for CNN. Sadiq Reddy joined Politico as a managing editor um, this year after a decade at the Wall Street Journal's Washington Bureau, where he was an economics editor. Sadiq also has Texas ties. Uh, he's covered the Texas legislature and served as a DC correspondent for the Dallas Morning News. So I wanted to open up this conversation with um, an homage maybe to uh, another friend of mine, Sam Sanders, who runs a weekly podcast called It's Been a Minute. Every week he asks, uh, reporters to sum up the the week in news in just three words. And I thought, I, I love that feature, and I thought what a great way to get started in thinking about what's really disrupting the news. So I asked our panelists to tell me in three words what the biggest threat to journalism is right now. So Melissa Bell, you're on the hot spot with what three words do you think capture? Uh, Roger Ailes' legacy. Ooh, expand on that, please. <laughs> That's only three words. I, <laughs> uh, I, I mean, I think that we'll go into this probably more deeper in the in the panel discussion. But um, we, I really believe that um, we have been thinking for a very long time and talking for a very long time about how much uh, how much we've struggled with the digital landscape, uh, and uh, especially at panels like this and uh, at conversa in conversations like this. Uh, and in reality, I think what we've seen, particularly over the last year, is just how broken our television news. Uh, system is um, and how much that actually needs to be disrupted. Um, I also think that um, the rise of like primarily right-wing uh, media outlets who pushed the conversation so far into a direction where we have to be uh, 
defensive and, uh, and um, frightened to talk about policy uh, and is, the third, is the second problem. The third problem is that uh, we've created, Roger Ailes loved the shouting matches and uh, has made entertainment um, into a shadow of, um, pretended, to, pretended that news is, um, is, is a news show, but it's actually entertainment. Um, and it's made all of our other uh, television shows tilt towards yelling at each other instead of discussing and providing context. Um, I think that, the, that if we're supposed to set out and provide information to people, to, uh, to show clearly what's happening in the world, uh, you do not get that on if you are watching television news across the board. Um, and I think that it uh, trickles down into our digital landscape as well. And um, that's, to me, the biggest threat that we have to talk about and think about right now. Roger Ailes. Roger Ailes' legacy. Peter? Um, my PC answer <laughs> is bad story selection. My non-PC answer is dumb, lazy noise, um, which plays off of what Melissa <laughs> was just saying. I think <clears throat> there's a lot of uh, crises in journalism that revolve around business and platforms and video and uh, local news, but in political journalism specifically, uh, the homogeneity of the news is to me a real problem and the lack of bravery uh, among editors and journalists to try to tell stories that not everyone else is telling. Um, I think that Twitter uh, is, a, is a huge problem in terms of story selection. I think everyone in Washington journalism follows the same reporters and the same people on Twitter and that drives the stories that they choose to put on cable news and network news every single night. And by extension, uh, we are left with just a constant whirlpool of the same stuff. And uh, one of the uh, missions of Snapchat and my show, uh, I think, and it's always, it's been a learning process, is to try to tell stories that not everyone else is telling, um, to get outside of Washington, to uh, cover subjects that aren't covered. Both of you guys do a really good job of that, actually. Um, so it's present company excluded. But there's just a lot of crap on television and a lot of crap that comes out of Washington that is irrelevant to most people's lives. And that, uh, that is a real challenge at the moment. Three words, shrinking attention spans. Um, they've been shrinking for a long time. They're still shrinking. We obviously uh, deal in 140 character bursts that are never enough to express the nuance and complexity of the world we're in. We uh, frequently have publishers trying to figure out how to get somebody for just three seconds to watch a video before it flies by so you can register the view and charge uh, for ads for six seconds or getting somebody to actually watch it for two minutes is an incredible feat uh, on the web. Um, all of this, the, the frenzied environment we're in is driven by people uh, across the country and around the world uh, increasingly having hair trigger responses to everything. And the more we encourage that, the less we actually uh, can advance our society and democracy. But from a journalism problem, it is perhaps one of the most maddening things we deal with. Every newsroom, uh, if, you've, if you've been in a newsroom, you'll see the Chartbeat screen. Chartbeat's a tool that allows you to see how many people are on a story at any moment, how many uh, minutes they're spending on a story. In most cases, it's seconds. How many seconds they're spending on a story before clicking out 
Uh, they might go three paragraphs, um, and then you can watch as the meter uh, goes from 100% down as you scroll down the screen, and you think this was only six or 700 words. Why did we lose two-thirds of the readers uh, in this? And it's a problem of storytelling. A lot of it is on us as journalists. It's a problem of platform. It's a problem of uh, business model. And it is one that I think is uh, some of the responsibility also falls to the uh, audiences out there, present company excluded, uh, that doesn't want to engage in something for more than a few seconds. I want to pick up um, on something that Melissa brought up, which is the polarization problem, which is obviously you know, very pronounced after the election. I think we all saw how divided um, the American electorate have become. And I would like to look a little bit about the role that media plays in that polarization. And I would like to get a sense from you all as to what do you think the media's role is in addressing that polarization? Melissa, you talked about the rise of these sort of right-wing, um, the rise of right-wing media and sort of, um, you know, pushing the, the fake news narrative and, you know, really contesting, you know, what mainstream media was reporting as a matter of fact. But, um, and, and you also saw on the other side, um, mainstream news outlets really touting all of their fact-checking and, but at the same time, if your audiences are inherently ideologically different, are you really making any progress? So how should news organizations be addressing that problem? Uh, is it a matter of diversifying your audience? Uh, is it, are you, do you have any responsibility to do that whatsoever as long as you're reporting the facts? How do you wrestle with that problem to really move the needle and, and make a difference there? I can start with this. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, you know, I think it's not just like right-wing media. I think that there's actually like a real concerted effort um, with um, the conservative um, movement for generations that have pushed um, a message that uh, the media um, reports fake news and false facts. But I also think that it's very much on the media industry as a whole for not taking a hard look at themselves in, uh, fast enough and not recognizing um, that there were real threats to the way information was changed, the way people were gathering information and the way that um, people were understanding how um, things happen in the world today. You mentioned short attention spans, and I, and I actually think that it's slightly different. I think it's, it's, our, it's on us to understand that we've built platforms that, that are based on game theory um, and reward short attention spans. We, um, we, it's on us to think about the fact that we're not creating new storytelling formats to really deeply engage audiences. Audiences are still out there. They're really curious. They want information. I don't think that there's huge ideological divides in every person because every single person has different ways that they approach different topics. What we're not doing is we're not trying to understand how to get at people in the way that they want to be gotten to these days. Um, we see huge engagement rates in terms of time spent with us. Um, we, we see people who are incredibly curious about subjects, and the subject matter um, is, is, can be on from both sides of the party, but we haven't created safe spaces for people to have discussions. One of the things that I'm most proud about, and I think, Amanda, you, you've spoken about this in the past so often, is how do you create a place for people to have discussions and find out information um, without it turning into loud, angry noise all of the time? Um, one of the things that we've done at Vox recently was we created a, um, a private Facebook page. We've moderated it heavily. 
And there's incredible discussions in that room from people on, with, that would um, identify as parties of the Republican Party and people from the Democratic Party. But because they're in a space where they can start to ask questions around the topic of healthcare, it's a very narrow topic, the conversations start off from a place of um, politeness. Mm -hmm. And they're able to actually go back and forth with one another in a space that doesn't feel like it's the entire internet staring at them. It doesn't feel like they need to spend just a few minutes there. They can spend the entire day having this healthy, robust discussion. And that gives me hope. It just means that we haven't set it up to do it right um, ourselves. Um, and that really is where we need to change the approach, for that we, the way that we create our media. Yeah, I've always like said that and again, I was a political reporter in Washington for 10 years, so forgive me if a lot of my stuff falls back on how the Washington media world works, specifically television. <clears throat> um, but I, I, I often say like DC is kind of like the last place in the world to figure out what's going on. Like it really, that continues to hold true in so many ways, including with media trends and how people are consuming information. Um, even between 2012 and 2016, the amount of time spent uh, on mobile screens every day doubled. People under the age of 25 spend um, uh, more time on mobile phones than watching television. People spend six hours a day looking at their mobile phones today. And on top of the, the products and the platforms, there are these communities and news organizations, anything from you know, Reddit to weird uh, you know, message boards to Breitbart, Snapchat, like there, people are living in places that are so far away from the kind of morning Joe green room culture that most of Washington cares about. So to answer your question, Amanda, I, I don't even think people understand the world in the first place, let alone how to fight it. The Berkman Center at Harvard released an incredible study this spring complete with amazing graphs that sort of demonstrate this, about how the Breitbart uh, uh, attacks on crooked Hillary and the sort of Clinton cash phenomenon drove decision making and stories at the New York Times and the Washington Post. Um, and I, again, I say this as someone who worked at a TV news organization in Washington. Um, the decision makers at these networks are incredibly reactive to what people on the right are saying and demanding in a way that they're not really to the left. Like they're like people in Washington are spooked by the right and making sure that they're accommodating both sides. Um, and that I think is, is something of a problem that needs to be addressed. That um, there's not both sides to every issue, but I do think that uh, a lot of TV news organizations present information that way. Steve, how so, do you guys wrangle this from the epicenter in DC. <laughs> I, I don't believe there are there are both sides to every issue. We should uh, yeah. rid the world of the the, the false equivalencies that uh, often uh, fall upon us. But there is a reality that you have increasing polarization of society, and uh, feeding that is increasing polarization of uh, news organizations, where there are uh, what appear to these extreme ends different sets of facts flying around when there is some shared set of facts that we need to communicate and deal with the interpretations of it um, beyond that. Coming up with that shared set of facts and communicating them, communicating them without, deal without uh, coming under the attacks from the extremes is, an ext is just such a difficult, difficult process. 
along the way because everybody out there is looking to attack. It is uh, rhetorical combat. There's a, a war going on in politics. Obviously, we know through uh, what we've seen in the, the, the primary system how extremes uh, tend to be tend to proliferate, and then you end up with uh, extremes in Washington that are having debates that uh, to people who were uh, around in a different, somewhat uh, less heated age, look at and think, well, there are, this is crazy. There are, there is some shared set of facts, but if you, uh, if your goal is to, to state that um, your position is the only winning position on anything, then your goal is likely to be to destroy the people at the other end of the spectrum and to muck it up however you possibly can. I love the idea of creating spaces for these uh, discussions. I remember in uh, 10, 11, 12 years ago at the Wall Street Journal when we created an economics blog, uh, we thought, are we really gonna do this? Blogging in the politics world, we brought uh, economic policy blogging uh, was in the very early stages. And when we launched it for the first few weeks, we were elated. They were the most uh, intelligent, impressive conversations that we had ever seen occur online, bringing evidence, bringing debate, bringing logic, bringing everything that we would all wish for. Three months later, it was just a wasteland. Uh, people saw that this was a chance to attack. They came in and they attacked, and all those users who were there in the, the first few months said, this is just uh, not worth my time because People don't want to engage in the facts I think anymore. that I mean I, th I think that this is a problem that we both you both mentioned is is um, the challenge of scale. We haven't figured out how to handle the amount of scale of um, information of users of um, conversations happening in so many different spaces. Um, and this really is I think the, one of the biggest challenges that we have to deal with in, in, is too much information for our users to parse through, um, too much fighting, <laughs> too much too much noise as you mentioned in the beginning. And th this is really where we need to start to think about how can we create solutions that, that uh, tackle that problem of scale. I also want to talk about how do we actually guide our journalists and help them navigate what they, the, the option, in my view, I, I don't see how a journalist cannot be on social media, although you see people with retreating or shutting down comments um, because it is too much. But the reality is this is the space where people are sharing where news is happening, where people are, are, are sharing um, the news. Sadiq, you made some comments recently about the guidance that you all have given in the Politico newsroom um, after this incident with uh, ESPN's Jamil Harris um, calling President Trump a white supremacist on Twitter. And uh, I think people came to her defense, but ultimately ESPN you know, reprimanded her publicly. And I think one question that I comes up particularly with people of color is, you know, what is the difference between someone pointing out the president's uh, rhetoric on race versus, you know, his, you know, his claims on crowd size? Like, how do you, how are you advising journalists to sort of navigate what it is incredibly blurry as people are sort of claiming certain things as fact or not as fact? Um, what guidance are you giving your journalists? We've actually been dealing with this throughout the year. It wasn't just in the last uh, few weeks. We've been talking about this as a group just because we saw, obviously, in the election, the increasing toxicity of social media. You say anything, and you're immediately uh, facing attacks being slung at you. Um, obviously, social media, uh, if, if you're on Twitter and a public profile, it is uh, open season. Anything you say will uh, will find somebody who uh, wants to disagree or tweet something 
racist or sexist uh, at you at any moment, and you kind of just have to take it. So our, our discussions have been, how do you process all of that, both from the, the technology end of dealing with the, the, the trolls and the fake accounts and the, the, the crazy people who are out there, but also how do you uh, model behavior for the public? We obviously, as journalists, have a special standing in these discussions. We are on the front lines trying to gather facts trying to understand what is at the core of these debates that we're having. So we ask our journalists to go out there, bring your facts back, and share them. Share as many facts as you can. Sometimes it might be analysis of the facts, but uh, avoid getting into uh, the, the insult hurling that's, that's taking uh, shape so often across social media, and bring more facts to this. Um, there are plenty of people with opinions out there. Bring whatever facts you can and repeat them relentlessly. And you can do that. You can talk about race while bringing facts to it without uh, having a total meltdown with uh, all the users who are around you who are trying to call you out and goad you. Because if you're not in the, the privileged position in a media organization, you want to have a voice too. Everybody wants to have a voice. And if you really believe so strongly that everyone else is wrong and you're right, you're going to lob as many grenades out there as you can to get attention, to, to create the scene, and uh, maybe sit back behind your computer and, and kind of be a little uh, thrilled that you, you were able to have a voice and that, when others weren't. And that's something, correct me if I'm wrong and this got misreported, but that's something you said that I totally agree with is like, journalists feel like they have this need to weigh in just to weigh in instead of just bringing their expertise in their reporting. Um, I understand that everyone cares about their own brand and their own voice. I certainly do, we all do as journalists, but I mean, it's not particularly brave to tweet something like, I'm against racism or like I support the First Amendment. Like you don't necessarily have to say that. Um, in the last two or three years even, there has become, like a lot of political journalists come to Washington and it's their first job. Right today, like because that's where the jobs are. Like uh, news jobs are increasingly not concentrated in state capitals. They're in New York and they're in Washington. So you graduate from college, you come to D.C., you get a job at any number of publications or TV news organizations, and all of a sudden you have a platform, and you feel like you have to weigh in on everything. And I think that's a that's a real challenge. I think it skews the incentives of young reporters to care more about their Twitter followings than the stories that they're actually writing or, or the videos they're creating. And um, it wasn't like that six years ago. We probably all had the same tendencies inside of us. Twitter sort of gave us an ability to express them every minute of the day. What you're referring to is a business model problem that where we don't have enough journalism jobs across the country, partly yeah. because you have shrinking attention spans. You have fewer people supporting the business models, which are often newspapers that are, uh, for understandable reasons, struggling. And when you have that effect, you have so many young graduates coming uh, to Washington and New York and uh, centers like that. And the, the advice I give to uh, recent graduates more often than anything else is go away. Not like go away from uh, <laughs> us, but go somewhere else in the country and understand the world. The lawmakers who were covering uh, at Politico, they all live somewhere else. They're, they're flying in. They're trying to experience that. They're representing somebody else's 
voice. Some of them don't do it very well, but most of them are out there trying to understand people in their own communities. So I say go somewhere else and keep in touch with me. And once you understand the country, I want your experience back in our newsroom so you can cover these people who are uh, making policy relentlessly with a, a, a true understanding of what's out there. Being able for me to, to start and uh, in journalism in uh, the Dallas area and going to those small group settings in uh, cafes and uh, pizza parlors and where, where I would go and chamber of commerce offices uh, for years working those rooms gave me a sense of uh, both at the at the individual level and at the business level what people are actually care about on the ground across the country so that you're you're bringing it forward um, with that perspective and what you do from Washington Peter, can you talk a little bit more about how your day-to-day -day really fundamentally changed going from CNN to Snapchat in terms of getting outside of the bubble and your approach to story selection or because you're going for sort of um, you know younger users or tell, tell us a little bit about how your work changed from CNN to Snapchat. Yeah, um, and at CNN I was a campaign reporter so I traveled all the time. Like I was always on the road and that sort of continues today for better or worse. Um, the, the main difference is that the vernacular of Snapchat is video. It's images, it's pictures. Like, how many of you in this room use Snapchat every day? Great. Um, like, young people, people younger than you especially, like, they communicate in images and videos. Um, they obviously chat, and, and that's a huge use case for us. Um, but it's figuring out how to distill complicated issues, um, both into uh, our stories, which are the user-generated content that comes out of things like the you know Texas football game, but also uh, you know the Charlottesville uh, incident uh, from the summer, uh, and, and adding context to that for an audience that is v completely disassociated from the sort of Acela corridor stuff that I was talking about earlier. Um, but my main focus right now is a show that I have on Snapchat called Good Luck America. And Good Luck America, uh, we launched during the presidential campaign um, almost as like a side hustle to see what kind of video content we could create, like premium video content we could create and then, and then put on Snapchat for our audience. Um, and the response has been tremendous. Uh, we've increased our audience 50% uh, season over season, around six million people. Um, watch the show. We've interviewed everyone from President Obama to Greg Abbott here in Texas about SB4. Um, so we're covering issues that matter, um, and the response from from people who watch the show has been incredibly earnest. Uh, they're like, "Oh, thank you!" Like I was on Snap earlier, like chatting with my friends, and I learned something about gerrymandering. That's cool. Um, just to get granular about it, and I'm sure Melissa has thoughts about this. Um, creating premium video for a mobile phone, which again, where most young people are spending their times these days, is a challenge, right? Like, we shoot vertically. Uh, my crew is in the house over here. They're, uh, they're, we're <laughs> shooting a bunch of interviews today. Um, uh, we use uh, motion graphics. We, pacing is incredibly important. These shows that we're doing are four to five minutes long. And we're doing telling stories, explaining something like SB4, Sanctuary City Band uh, here in Texas. Um, so there's the production aspect, which is interesting. And at a TV network, all the tropes are the same. Like it's the same cameras, the same setup, the same like walk and talk, the same like here I am on the scene look. 
The simple, you guys do such a good job of this, the simple act of like using a nice camera and light, lighting something differently, like to present news, makes an incredible difference. Like just think about how you want to consume information. Do I want a two and a half minute segment that is completely formulaic and like shot kind of boring or do I want something that's more engaging? I mean, I think we know the answer. Um, the second thing we think about a lot is voice and uh, I often use the like Hillary versus Bernie example to talk about this. Um, if you are presenting news and political news to young people, uh, you don't have to say lit. You don't have to be like, this is, this is my woke take on the news. You don't, you don't have to do that. Like everybody else on the planet, they just want credible, authoritative information that they can trust and also consume in these sort of like spaces during the day where we're all competing for their attention. Um, so just talking like myself and uh, not being afraid to cover something like outsourcing or a sanctuary city ban, like a 15-year-old is interested in that. Like they are. And uh, uh, I do think a lot of people fall into a trap when they try to present news to, to uh, young people that they have to like talk a certain way or only cover like student loans. Like you don't have to do that. I think the other interesting thing, or if we're talking about disruption too, as someone who started really working on social media and audience in earnest in about at 2010, mm -hmm. when Snapchat first came along, I was like, How, who's going to use Snapchat and news because it's inherently a closed network, there's no referrals back. It's like wrapping our, our heads around that as news organizations, and then you have the aha moment. Snapchat is all about the connections and persistent connections. It's not about referrals back, and it's about how much time people are engaging personalities that they never would have found otherwise, and whether they're discovering new people um, or you know, communicating with their friends. But for news organizations to do it well, to your point, it does require a really distinct set of skills and formats than you know, many, most of the mainstream newsrooms in the country have, frankly. And so absent you know, being, having the resources to be in Snapchat Discover, I mean, what would it take, and this is an important demographic, right, sure. to really engage those millennials. So what should other newsrooms really be doing if they want to be relevant to that audience? This, I've to been do thinking it well? about this a lot lately, and Melissa, she should definitely talk about this, but like um, people in journalism, like journalism Twitter, like everyone makes fun of like the pivot to video. I think the Venn diagram of people who like make fun of the pivot to video and have actually created video is like completely distinct. Like there's no overlap there. Um, <laughs> you have to invest in it. Well, Melissa. Yeah, go on. I, I really Melissa enjoyed this conversation. And Melissa explicitly um, made some comments about the pivot to video, and so I want you to tell me more about that and why you felt the need to talk about what Vox was going to do or not do relative to the pivot to video. Sure. Amanda's referring to a letter I sent out to our staff um, a, a couple of weeks ago, um, and and what, there's just been a lot of conversation in the, in the industry around pivot to video, and I like to send out notes to our, to our teams just to give them an understanding of how we're thinking about uh, investments at the company. We've grown really fast as a company over the last um, three and a half years. When I started, I think there was about 150 people at the company, and now there's about a thousand. So it's been it's been a very quick scale uh, issue of scale internally as well. So I wrote this note. We published uh, we published it publicly, and it was essentially trying to talk about how um, Vox Media really uh, tries to understand different mediums um, at different times, and there's no there's no sudden shift or swing into a new product. Um, we try to start to take on the new formats that are available to us, Snapchat being one of them, video being another. 
in experimental forms. And then we slowly figure out what works there. Um, we try to hire people who know those, those formats really well. Um, when we started our first, um, our first foray into Snapchat, we didn't just ask uh, you know, um, folks on our teams to start becoming Snapchat reporters. We went out and hired some people who had uh, really good instincts with visuals, who really understood uh, motion graphics, who understood the pacing that, that you're talking about, and who used Snapchat themselves, who felt part of that, uh, that sort of ecosystem. And then what we have, what we try to do is we try to encourage real collaboration across our teams. So even though there is a team that was just working on Snapchat stories for a time, and now the Snapchat format has actually spilled over into Instagram, um, into uh, visual stories that we do on our own websites. Um, we had that team working very closely with teams that were working with video, uh, people who had great reporting instincts. So there's a lot of facilitation that has to happen in our groups, but they all learn from one another. So the people who were initially strong visual reporters on Snapchat maybe didn't have the depth of reporting experience that some of our writers did, but they learn from one another because they're working close, closely side by side. Uh, and we try to give them the, the autonomy to um, become you know, a really great Snapchat reporter, a really great um, video reporter. Um, and so I think what we've been able to do is create a culture of, um, of really talented creators across all of these different formats when they're talking to the audiences that are on those platforms. Um, our video work is some of the work that I'm the most proud of at our company. And uh, you mentioned your, your pieces are about um, four to five minutes long. One of our most successful pieces um, was seven minutes long, and it was a it was a seven-minute explainer on Syria. Um, to pack information about Syria, a complex, a very, very complex topic, you have to do your work. You have to do. You have to understand the subject matter. You have to understand the topic deeply. But we didn't just present it in a way that might that might have been a you know a segment on CNN with um, a more uh, traditional approach. We had beautiful visuals because people want to see beautiful visuals on the internet. We had we had music. We had um, a really engaging. Uh, a host explaining the explaining the situation there. We want to make it appealing to our audiences because we're thinking about what do what do they really need and want from this. That Syria explainer, I think, is now around, hovering around 100 million um, uh, views. Um, I'm sorry, 100 yeah, 100 million views, and there's almost a 60% uh, completion rate on it because people are staying with us through the whole thing. Um, and that's the kind that's of stuff. That's by the way, that's 20 times as many as people who watch like the Today Show every day. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and that's the stuff that I think that um, you know, we really believe that if we, can get, if we can figure out the type of quality reporting that we should be doing every single day as journalists and marry it with the techniques that, that of, of the types of platforms and formats that people are using today, that's where the sort of secret sauce comes together. We're, we're going to move to audience questions in about five minutes if you want to you know, think about what you want to ask. Um, we've got a mic here, um, just a heads up. But one question I guess I want to end with with you all, you know, Melissa, after the election, I, I think I read you saying that you were angry, basically, that that was your response to the election in the sense that you felt like you hadn't done your job or journalism wasn't doing its job. And I guess my question for all three of you all would be, what has fundamentally changed about how you do your jobs since the election, if anything, and, and how, what progress or what impact have those changes made in the work that you produce every day? So I, so just to clarify that a bit, I wasn't angry with um, the work that the Vox Media uh, teams had been doing. I thought they did a very, very good job. And I, and I think that I was, I think I was angry. I'm, 
angry because I don't think that, it, that we have taken a hard look as a media industry about the problems that we have in, with our own organizations. Um, I mentioned the television problem at the top of this. Um, I think that we are not talking seriously about what what kind of environment that creates for information sharing in our in our country. I think that you see some of the um, some of the struggles that we still have uh, in traditional um, print reporting, where we are not acknowledging the the type of um, uh, responsiveness to story selections that causes uh, people to be really truly confused about the issues. So is there anything that you changed though at Vox in terms oh, of how sorry. you... sorry. <laughs> I was getting angry. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so was I. It's okay. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, I think that, you know, for, for Vox, for Vox.com, our, our news um, site, what they did is that they just leaned into more what they were doing. They're trying to provide context around the policy issues that matter for people. Our teams grew, um, I think, uh, over 30% over the last year. Um, we are seeing both an audience demand for understanding really complicated topics like healthcare, um, and um, we're pushing into that even more than we than we were uh, a year ago. I think with our other brands, we've seen, um, uh, you know, we have we have seven uh, seven other brands at Fox Media that span everything from fashion to video games to sports, and I think that those teams have also started to shift a focus to thinking about how can they cover their areas. Um, with an eye towards explanation around uh, policy matters. Curbed is a great example of actually like a really vibrant local news um, organization. They have uh, city sites all across America. They're doing great policy coverage of, of, um, of infrastructure needs um, around the country. Um, RACT has you know, been uh, doing more and more scoops around Ivanka Trump's fashion lines. So all of our brands, I think, are more cognizant of the fact that they have the ability and the platform to start to cover, this, to cover these topics in ways that matter. So, We've just been doing more work. Peter, what about you? Yeah, I think um, the thing that, the, one of the things that right now in this moment that I'm really proud of and Snapchat is uh, doing very well um, is we care about news. There's no fake news on Snapchat. We hire journalists. Uh, we curate content. We have publishing partnerships with everyone from the New York Times, The Economist, The Washington Post who are uh, choosing what content to put on Snapchat every day, and millions of people are reading it there. Um, I have a show about politics where we're able to sort of puncture through the filter bubble and show a lot of young Americans that, hey, there are people that look like you, talk like you, likes the same sports teams and music, but they voted for Trump, and vice versa. Um, so the, the lack of, of uh, uh, the sort of like... Um, uh, confirmation bias that you might see on other platforms. Like, we don't have that. We care about journalism. Um, and that, I think, is something that's incredibly powerful in this moment. We've done two things. One is just around the type of reporting do, we do. The other is about audiences. Uh, on the reporting side, um, we, to put it simply, just double down on facts. So if you bring more accountability journalism to this space, it's incredibly useful for uh, our traditional readers of, uh, of Politico. Even throughout the election, the most read journalism was the accountability journalism, the, the reviews of the facts, the, the, the close inspection of what was being said in the political sphere, and we really focused on that, uh, and we're doing even more of it now. We're training uh, more journalists across every beat to deal with the volume of false information uh, that's out there, to deal with the lack of transparency uh, that's, that's uh, increasingly coming uh, from the government. And so we're uh, just doubling down on that to train for it, to work with our, uh, our journalists for it, and to work with our audience for it. The, uh, the, the 
proliferation of tips coming in from Signal, from uh, other platforms of people who are who care about society, who want to share um, useful, valuable information that needs reporting. It's coming in fa faster than ever mm -hmm. before, and so we've we've been able to do that. On the audience side, it's really how do you get to a different uh, end? Uh, the, the political readership is, is uh, like many of you, uh, highly educated, tends to be uh, really engaged in what's going on, willing to read uh, the, those stories uh, to the end. But uh, it's the people who are, are just like coming by for the, the, the quick seconds, the shortest attention span uh, readers. How do we get them and viewers and listeners, how do we get them to stick with us? And that's thinking about much different forms of storytelling and different platforms. Uh, how do we think smarter about Apple News? Think where people might not be engaging with our kind of journalism, getting to them, and making it easier for more people who are looking for fact-based journalism to get it um, alongside whatever opinion journalism you want as well. What questions do you all have? There's a mic right here. Please tell us your name, where you're from. things that you talked about in audience development is, is I have great respect for what you all talked about and, and what you do and what you're doing, uh, but all of it was from this DC sort of focus, you, and you brought, rightly brought that up. What can, you, what can you apply, or what thoughts can you apply that you all have said to today to the vast majority of readers that are out there that are local and suburban news sites and newspaper readers? How can you disrupt that? So. Oh, sorry. I was just going to say, support the Texas truth. Yeah. <laughs> no, for sure. I mean, there's that. Um, and there are a number of other um, nonprofit and for-profit local news startups around the country um, that are doing great work. But this gets back to what I said in the beginning. There needs to be more, again, like some news organizations cover Washington. Like that's their mission and like they should continue to do that. Um, but a lot of national news organizations are making choices to pay for a uh, expensive pundit to go on TV every night and rant, when that would literally pay for like three days of reporting from the Ohio River Valley or McAllen, Texas. Like, I just don't think there's a lot of enough bravery among uh, bureau chiefs and editors in Washington and New York to send their reporters elsewhere. And like, look, I say that in full acknowledgement of the incredible work that national journalists did during Harvey, during Irma. Uh, there are people risking their lives covering Syria still. Um, but when those big events aren't happening, on the day-to-day -day basis, when you turn on the news, it's people yelling. And it's really frustrating. And just to put a personal note on it, we went to McAllen earlier this year. And we spent an entire day in McAllen talking to uh, young immigrants whose parents don't have papers, just about like what the zeitgeist is on the border uh, uh, around immigration, right? Just listening. And uh, I just wish more TV news organizations would commit resources to that everyday storytelling that just kind of gets lost. I wish our local guy could have the to Totally, and I say that with the privilege of being a platform, right, and not a news organization, right? We like, We've yeah. put dozens of journalists. We have dozens of journalists all across the country. We have uh, a reporter uh, in Austin, Rainer uh, Ryasam, is on our health team doing fantastic work. Uh, we've got reporters in other parts uh, of the country to try to bring that perspective uh, 
of, of what's actually happening on the ground outside of Washington. We obviously have a tremendous number, hundreds of journalists uh, within Washington as well. What I would just challenge you and everyone else here, since you are the, uh, the high information uh, readers and viewers and listeners, is uh, to not just yourself, but to get everyone in your networks to share that high value, high quality journalism, because that's what resonates. Journalism that get, gets shared. When we do stories that get, uh, get millions of, of readers on them, and they're things that surprise us, and really important topics that we wouldn't have necessarily thought about otherwise, that I think, oh, this is not going to get a whole lot of audience, and if it gets a few thousand, I'm going to be happy. And then it becomes a blockbuster hit. It gives us the ammunition to say, yes, we're going to do more of it. It gives us the, uh, the ability to go to uh, to deal with the business model issues and get people who are willing to put their company name around that kind of journalism because people do care about it, but you need to get everyone else to share it as well so the audience comes to it and where we don't just have more mudslinging in your Facebook feed. I'll say this real quick, just because uh, because local is, journalism is one of my like most important uh, concerns, I think, out there that I have. This is something that is very near and dear to my heart. Um, at Vox Media, we have um, three brands that really focus on local coverage with SB Nation, Eater, and Curbed, and they all do great journalism at the local level. They, they have, there's Curbed Austin, there's Eater Austin. Um, they do great local journalism. Moving into the local news space is something, it, more general news space, I think is something that, I'm, that I constantly think about. And, it, and the struggle that we have is that the business model the the, um, the editorial model and the technology model is so is so tricky to understand and figure out right now, even at the national level, mm -hmm. um, that passing those lessons down to the local level is something that we haven't fully solved for yet. We I think we're we at Vox Media are setting an example with the Curb Network, the SB Nation Network, um, but it's still tricky. We're, it's still not it's still not totally there. So my hope is, I'm working on it. Give me a couple give me a couple years. <laughs> Okay, um, my question is about Snapchat and how news organizations are using it. Um, at a panel earlier, a uh, Frontline's executive producer said that they're about to start using Snapchat. And one of the concerns using Snapchat is keeping a public record of the content they've created. So is there a way that Snapchat is responding to this issue for news organizations that as journalists they feel accountable to keep a record and be able to come back to these and correct them? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, one, I will say from like a security and safety and law enforcement perspective, like uh, we, we, don't, we don't save your snaps, but like we comply with all law enforcement requests from that sort of preservation metadata perspective. Um, from a news perspective, uh, one, we are, I know this sounds crazy, but we're still like a young company. Like we're still working through a lot of this stuff. Um, Two, uh, you know, on something like the Snapchat map, I don't know if any of you used it to sort of follow what was going on during Harvey. Like, you were able to like navigate around the city and see incredible footage mm -hmm. that users were creating from inside their homes to document the, the flooding and, and rescue efforts. Over half a million uh, people in Texas submitted snaps to our stories and to the map during, during Harvey. Um, that stuff lives for, um, I think, a week right now, and forgive me because I'm not like totally on the product side right now, I'm mostly focused on the show. Um, but I think you're gonna see a way to sort of have searchable content uh, at some point. Yeah, but will there be a, a way to archive that content other than memories, like a public archive um, for news orgs? I don't know the answer to that because it's not my part of the company, so yeah. Okay, thank you. Yeah. 
Hi, I'm Sydney. Um, so you guys talked about how your videos, especially at Vox and at Snapchat and Articles of Politico, are helping educate um, the masses about very complex policy issues, and that's fantastic. I actually watched the Syria video, and it was probably one of the most beautiful things I've ever seen. <laughs> um, my question is, do you think that there has been an increased level of activism since uh, post-election, since all these new videos are coming out about um, complex Trump scandals and complex policy issues like healthcare. Do you think that because people are learning about it, they're becoming more involved in their political fields and just, yeah. Uh, this is something that I think uh, we, I would love for us to have a better understanding of audiences' reaction to news after the news has been published. Um, we have, we still have pretty limited metrics and it's actually, I think one of the reasons why we struggle so much is that uh, for too often I think we make, people have made decisions around um, story selection or uh, next next steps um, around an article because they're thinking about page views or they're thinking about um, three second views on a video. Um, we don't, we're not able to see exactly how people take our, our work and then what decisions they make after that. Um, the very like rudimentary thing that we did on our, on the Vox Media sites is we asked people the question, was this, was this article useful, yes or no? Um, and we asked if it was not useful, why not? Um, but that's about the that's about the most that we can see uh, how people react to our stories and our work. Um. The best answer I have for that is is anecdotal. Like I think that um, one we have a Good Luck America Snapchat account, which you just kind of use as like a little bit of a focus group because we're always incredibly attuned to uh, how our audience is processing the information and what they want and what what stories uh, they're interested in. Um, you know, and and I do think that Trump's election has activated people generally, but also young people to care about this stuff. I mean, I'm, I'm friends with the guys who run Crooked Media, this Pod Save America uh, podcast. Um, you know, they say they're hitting between like 800,000 and a million downloads or streams of their uh, shows all the time. The Daily on the New York Times, I emailed Barbaro the other day just to ask what their numbers were right now. He said they're at 750K every day. Like, would these numbers be that high in a world where Hillary Clinton's president? I'm not certain they would, um, and I think all news organizations have seen just like mm -hmm. traffic booms generally, um, because it's all there is. Like look at the headlines on the way this day is organized at TripFest. It's Trump in Congress, Trump in the presidency, right? Like people care, and that's, I mean, again, that's not driven by data, it's just what people are talking about. Great, thank you. Well, my name is uh, Corey from San Antonio. I just had a quick question. We, we, we kind of touched on it, but um, so there's a lot of fringe organizations, right, that are like confirmation bias peddlers, basically. And um, it's, I think it's important to note they exist on both sides of the ideological spectrum, right? But it seems that a lot more of them exist on the right side of the ideological spectrum. And uh, I was, my question is two parts. So one, why do you think that is, that those kinds of like, you know, irresponsible news organizations, I guess I would call them, exist more often on the right than the left? Why is that demand there? And second, what is the responsibility of, you know, responsible curated news or journalism to call out or confront those kinds of organizations? I mean, I think to the first question, I don't, I don't know, I, I don't have numbers exactly about like the, what, how, if there's more right-wing media or there's more just attention to it or uh, acknowledgement of it, because um, I think you are right. There are, there are um, ideological, uh, um, organizations on both sides. I, and I actually think that it goes to um, the business of not having to do your work. <laughs> not doing a lot of work and just putting, 
putting ideas up on the web is pretty cheap. It's not, it's not too hard, and then, if you, and then you can make money off of that. You can, especially because I think social platforms uh, flavor, uh, I'm sorry, not flavor, favor emotional outrage. Um, people share things that they, that they either agree with or they get mad about. So there's, so, there's a, so there's a revenue model there. It costs a lot to do good journalism. It costs to, for us to send our reporters out and to cover the issues across the country. It, 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 it's expensive. It's expensive business. Um, when you have people who are not necessarily doing that work, uh, it's, it becomes um, pretty easy to put up an operation quickly. Um, so that's the, that's the first thing. And I think, that, I think that the biggest thing that we can do is, uh, within our own organizations is be as transparent as possible about the work that we're doing, showing the facts, uh, showing, showing the, the um, expertise that we've gathered, the reporting that we've done, um, and, and listen to what our audience is actually looking for, trying to understand what our audience needs, and trying to uh, serve that rather than just uh, something that we saw on media Twitter and thinking that that's the, th that's the most exciting thing to write about. We have to be, actually be listening to our audiences a lot more um, because I think those those organizations are listening to the to the outrage in people and appealing to that need. And I'd like us to listen to the part of people who want to know information and serve that need. Yeah. I also think it's clear that, that that's not a problem that media alone can solve. Platforms bear a huge responsibility there in figuring out a way to make sure that people and they ha they should have a vested interest, right? If people can't trust anything that they are finding on these platforms, eventually there's going to be a problem with their um, with their audiences there um, and their you know willingness to spend time there. Um, just this last week, I guess the FEC you know said that they were going to be opening up public comment on potentially introducing more regulatory oversight of political advertising online, which is another big piece of the pie. And I think that's an area where. Um, at least media maybe didn't pay as much attention to because all of the ad dollars really are being spent on TV still, but you don't have to spend as much money on the internet to have an outsized impact on, obviously, decisions that people make and, and conclusions that people come to. So it's a complicated um, problem, and it's not one that media alone can solve. And I think reporting that out and being more um, astute about covering that in and of itself, and I think also you know news organizations are so reliant to an extent on these platforms right for audience and remembering that you know we also have a duty to be covering them really aggressively and helping people understand how these platforms are really shaping the way that we consume information in really fundamental ways I'm not convinced that all of this is entirely new the name you're not hearing as much these days is Rush Limbaugh um, he is uh, he he was the uh, the Breitbart of a different era. He was somebody yeah. who would listen to to see like what, how is this going to play with a certain uh, segment of the population. Um, though that uh, I don't want to call it a, a mandate, but that experience has been transferred uh, to uh, to other purveyors in other ways, and um, people still hunger. A certain segment of the population will hunger for that uh, confirmation bias or whatever. Uh, whatever you want to call it. I would love to see more research on. Well, it. so there is. I was going to say there. Uh, <laughs> There actually, Pew did a study this year um, saying that uh, people who identify as right-leaning are more willing to trust a piece of information than people who identify as left-leaning, right? So if that, if that is true, then that would sort of lend itself toward, you know, like you said, a larger ecosystem where people can just thrive off of, you know, either peddling falsehoods or gently shifting the truth to sort of reward confirmation bias or outrage. I think we have time for one more quick question. Thanks. Last question. Sure. 
Um, hi, my name is Jen, and I'm a huge Vox fan. And I think that the storytelling is amazing and just sets like a really high standard for everybody else. Um, but That's a great question. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, but my question is, um, during the election, there were times where I think Vox, like everybody fell into the exact same trap about how they covered the Trump campaign. And you could like go on any website and every story was just a million different takes on everything he said. And I think all media organizations had that problem. And I wonder if you guys have had an opportunity to look back and reflect and see if that campaign should have been handled differently. Covered differently. Covered differently. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I think that the, uh, I think it's a good question, and I think it's something that we really need to be asking ourselves. We asked it internally um, at Vox. I think there was a lot of really good work that the team did. I'm pretty far removed from the newsroom at this point, but, but, uh, and I was during the election too, so I, I'm not the the most accurate person to talk to about this. But the, but from what I know, they felt that they that there were times that they would get caught in the in the news cycle stories too often. And uh, they, they acknowledged that in the newsroom. They had conversations about that. It's hard when, um, when, the, when there's interest in a, in a topic that is really, um, that feels like it really matters in a really big way, that everyone feels like they're talking about that. Everyone is talking, is, is, has an idea about what, what does this mean? It was such an unusual election. There was every single, I mean, you can speak to this probably even more so than I can, every single day, it felt like there was something that was new in the election space um, than, than they'd ever seen before. Um, but at the same time, they, I think that they also felt like they did really good policy explainers. They tried to keep up the beat of what would, what would actually matter in the end, whether it was a Clinton election or a Trump election. I think they tried very hard to say, what will this look like in the future? Um, and, and so after, when, you know, when the election was over, that's what they've been focusing on. They've been saying, let's lean into that policy coverage. Let's lean into that, trying to help people understand what really matters, especially when, you know, today, for instance, the entire conversation is around um, football players and baseball players and, the, and, and a comment that the president made. And uh, that, is, that is happening at the same time as a major policy coverage, uh, a policy change that could go into effect and really change the lives of millions of people. And we need to be able to help people understand that both conversations are very important. But if you don't understand the complexities of the healthcare debate right now, um, that, could, that could affect millions and millions of lives in a very real way. And this, we need to not have the, we need to make sure that we're not getting distracted from that. Um, so, that's, so that's definitely something that we've been thinking about a lot. Beyond bringing more facts, bring, bring more context. So that means, uh, <clears throat> one of the risks we have when you have uh, the, the news cycle changing so often is you, you hit the story and you move on and you don't stop to think about what actually was the driving force behind that. Uh, Donald Trump says what he says because he understands uh, some way to push buttons and how he can get people's attention on certain issues. So we have to take the time to open it up, to, to take apart the issue and present that quickly. It requires uh, reporters uh, being very smart. It requires uh, readers hold, and viewers and listeners holding these outlets accountable to the facts, not just screaming uh, at them, but also just helping to bring the facts as a citizen um, to already anybody who's doing that. And so we respond to readers' uh, email and tweets and Facebook posts. And so doing fact-based responses uh, are also incredibly valuable uh, as an audience and as a citizen, and we, we need more of that. Peter, do you want to have the last word? No, I was just going to say, like, <laughs> I'm glad you guys did have a sober 
post-game discussion about like what you did and didn't do. I don't. I think a lot of people after the election were like, like, oh, we missed it, or like, shouldn't have hired Corey Lewandowski to go on TV every day. <laughs> and then like two weeks later, it was just off the races, and everyone sort of forgot. Like that. I get that there's no like governing body of journalism. Like that sounds kind of Soviet, but like, it it's you know, like there's like the media, the political media is hugely uh, complicit here and has a likes to put some kind of distance between itself and the political process when they are part of the political process and like there's not a ton of like you know post-mortem hand-wringing that that leads to you know substantive changes about how we cover politics but maybe Trump is shaking us into that and that's a good thing we can't get better if we don't constantly look at how yeah. we can get better so that it's that's what we need to be doing constantly. Sorry, was that, that was his last no. word. No, yeah, Melissa <laughs> likes to have the last word. Box Thanks is for amazing. all the smart questions. <laughs> Thanks, Melissa, Peter, Sadiq.